Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Welcome, everyone, to the March episode of the Mayo Clinic Always On EM podcast. My name is Venk Bellamconda. It's a pleasure to host the show with my colleague and friend, Dr. Alex Finch. Before we get into the main part of the show, we'd love it if you could take a moment to like, comment, or follow our show on your podcasting platform of choice and tell your colleagues and friends about us. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter or Instagram or via email as well. March is one of my favorite months of the year because of birthdays, spring, and of course, St. Patrick's Day, where the Chicago River is turned bright green Each day feels like it has the potential for being especially lucky, just like today, where we are incredibly fortunate to sit down with our friend and amazing educator, Dr. Justin Kreuter. Justin is an assistant professor of laboratory medicine and pathology, as well as the program director for the Transfusion Medicine Fellowship. He also serves as associate director of the Histocompatibility Laboratories here at Mayo Clinic. He is a former teacher of the year for clinical pathology and is a forward-thinking educator in all respects. I have had the privilege of serving on our kids' school board alongside him and watching him teach large audiences live. He is exceptional at taking complicated concepts and distilling them to the key fundamentals. He and I both share a love of bow ties, and he is the host of a fantastic Mayo Clinic Laboratories podcast, where he is affectionately known as the Bowtie Bandit of Blood. Truly, welcome to our show, my dear friend. Hey, thrilled to be here with you guys. We're so excited to have you. I've really been looking forward to this. Before we go too long, can you tell our listeners about your show? Yeah, so... Uh, we, it's called lab medicine rounds. So people can find us by probably either Googling or searching on YouTube. Cause we also post our podcast on YouTube, uh, lab medicine rounds. And the intention is really to bring the laboratory and the clinical practice together through insightful conversations. So it's, uh, really covers, covers the gambit of clinical practice and different aspects from students to clinicians to laboratory professionals. Bowtie bandit of blood. We have to talk about bow ties. How many do you have? <laughs> I have uh, probably on the order of uh, 40 to 45 uh, bow ties uh, at this point. Uh, it ended up uh, a nickname that uh, got bestowed upon me when I graduated uh, from my residency program, and I've uh, maintained it ever since. How did you choose pathology and um, get into working with transfusion and histocompatibility? That's a good question. So um, for me, I I went to medical school really thinking I was going to do anesthesia uh, because I had done some uh, drug addiction work uh, before medical school. So I was thinking about pain medicine and anesthesia. And then as I was getting uh, more into it, I was finding out that I really like inpatient care. Uh, so thinking about anesthesia in general or anesthesia critical care. Uh, and then I had um, <laughs> probably overreacted to a uh, situation I had uh, when I was on my inpatient family medicine service where you know I was asked to give a presentation about uh, my patient who had uh, gram-negative sepsis. And I did this presentation all about the background and 
this happens and that happens very, as I was thinking about it, kind of anesthesiologist mechanism. Um, and when I presented it, uh, my mentor at the time was just kind of like, well, but what about which medication would you use to treat them? And at the time I kind of overreacted to that. I, I saw that as like, you know, we, back in the day, I forgot the name of that little pocketbook we all used to carry in yeah, our Maxwell's. Maxwell. And I, yeah. used, I, you know, I was like, well, I'd pull it out and just see what's, first line i didn't understand the uh the uh medicine in that so i kind of had a existential crisis where i was like gosh i'm so interested in mechanism and how stuff happens uh and that's when somebody said why don't you go check out uh pathology um which i did a rotation uh very beginning of fourth year of medical school <laughs> and uh and i just uh blew me away the Ability to see, um, you know, you would, from the anatomic pathology side, you would see the slides and come to understand what the cancer looks like. Sometimes you would see the precursor lesions. You could see normal tissue. You would see the dysplasia. You would see the cancer. I thought that was really interesting. And then from the laboratory medicine side, again, the sort of you know, what is truth? That's something that I think we struggle with in medicine. We might get into that when we talk about transplant, um, but, uh, you know, we're using these tests that are not uh, perfect. They're imperfect. I thought it was a neat opportunity to see, um, you know, to the best of our knowledge and have kind of an honest assessment of what do we know and how, how, how do we know that? How, how certain are we? Um, so I started pathology residency my first year, slapping a lot of glass, looking through a microscope. And then fortunately my second year when transfusion medicine came around, it all of a sudden was back into patient care, uh, which again, my interest being in the, in the inpatient kind of setting, uh, where I trained, we would be bedside for all the major bleeds. So I'd be down in the ED up in the uh, ICU or in the OR, and um, uh, it was a reawakening for me. It was a great fit. Is Have you ever seen an emergency de uh, department physician in the role of a transfusion uh, fellowship, or how does that process work? Oh, I, we would absolutely welcome uh, transfusion, uh, somebody who trained in emergency medicine into the transfusion medicine fellowship. So that's something that uh, yeah, most people are not aware of, that you can really come from any ACGME uh, boarded specialty into uh, doing a transfusion medicine uh, fellowship. So the most common uh, examples are uh, pathologists like myself. Um, the second most common is probably uh, people that come from internal medicine and do a transfusion medicine fellowship either with that combination and, and do hospitalist work or may go on and do a uh, hematology oncology uh, fellowship. And then we also have uh, people who are originally trained in anesthesiology that do transfusion medicine in practice. In fact, we have somebody here uh, in our practice who uh, did anesthesia, transfusion medicine, and then cardiothoracic uh, anesthesia um, and I, I affectionately call him my Rosetta Stone because <laughs> he can speak uh, the language on both sides. <laughs> well, with that, we're on to our case. Uh, we're 
We're at our emergency department here at St. Mary's, and we have a young gentleman who is brought in with a gunshot wound to his abdomen. When we get his initial manual blood pressure, he's hypotensive, he's tachycardic, and everyone in the room is anticipating that things are about to get worse. We start to talk about giving him blood. Before we get into what exactly we're going to give him and in what proportions, when you, when you hear about that situation, having been at the bedside, what kinds of things do we need to be doing right away? And do we need labs? And if so, what labs are we going to get? Yeah, I think um, the first thing that comes to mind is that it's really important uh, that we draw labs for a type and screen on this patient as soon as we can. Okay. And the reason I say that is because... You know, the way that our practices are, we'll do emergency release uh, blood at first, which as probably most of the listeners uh, know, will be uh, type O blood. Um, and if we're talking about the person who was shot, if they were a, a woman of childbearing age, places would use their O negative blood. But, um, you know, there's people of all different blood types. And so the sooner that we know what somebody's blood type is, we have the opportunity to switch to type-specific blood, or in other words, it allows us to conserve that O uh, blood resource uh, for the patients who actually are blood group O, or who uh, may come into uh, the next trauma bay and require emergency release blood. So having a blood type allows us to conserve our community's resource of uh, blood products. Um, and the sooner that we can get that pulled, the sooner we can switch to type-specific blood. Uh, and also, as we start to transfuse the patient, um, that can obviously kind of start to progressively get a little bit more complicated to know what their true blood type is. I mean, we might have somebody who um, maybe at first were stabilized at another hospital before they made it to us. and you know, their, their blood type at that point in time might be O-neg <laughs> because that's what they've gotten a lot of. But I, I think still the core message is just the same, that the first thing we should try to do as a priority is to get that type and screen so that we can really conserve resources and get appropriate blood products to the patient. On that screen side, which we can probably put a hold on a little bit, but, you know, it is important to know what antibodies, uh, clinically significant red cell antibodies a patient has. And the more that that might get diluted out by uh, the hemorrhage, um, uh, you know, that might fall below uh, what we can detect. So again, pulling that type in screen is really important. A couple of questions bouncing off that. We talked about how um, a female patient is going to get O negative and we're thinking forward to uh, uh, the possibility of a, a pregnancy and, um, and uh, potentially then causing harm to the, the fetus. Um, but how about in the male patient, if we give O positive blood and they develop an antibody to that, is there a problem if they get O positive blood again in the future? Is that a problem? Uh, well, what happens is, uh, you know, so in the future, if they were to need blood, uh, assuming that it wasn't, uh, this wasn't somebody who was unlucky to get shot a second time, that, but maybe it's that all happens. about <laughs> unluckiness breeds unluckiness. 
But, uh, you know, in the sort of stable situation, you get a type in screen, you're going to see that anti-D antibody. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you are going to give that person O negative blood. Now, bad luck uh, situation. It's another emergency situation. You can't wait and you just give it. Uh, we're sort of spared by the fact that uh, the, in the RH system, this D antibody uh, is known to really precipitate uh, an extravascular, uh, sorry, um, yeah, an extravascular hemolysis rather than an intravascular hemolysis. Uh, and the difference clinically is, is quite significant as an extravascular uh, hemolysis, you're just going to have that uh, red cell mass uh, drift down as those splenic macrophages uh, pick out uh, those red cells that are antibody-coated, as opposed to an intravascular hemolysis uh, where the rupturing of the red cells in the vascular space can set off the uh, coagulation cascade and you can get DIC, etc. I'm going through, in my mind, these ED scenarios come up, which is there are patients who have antibodies, but you know we have to give them blood faster. What's going to be going to be the problem with that? And and then secondarily, uh, when we identify these antibodies for us, it's usually just on Epic something pops up and says there's an antibody, and I don't I don't really know what that you know means. What are uh, what is your team doing to give me the right blood product in the end? For me, it's all magic <laughs> it's it just a, it's a something uh for the stable patient something great shows up that's just right for them and, and i don't know how that works and mm -hmm. for the unstable patient i want to know what's the risk to the patient if uh if they have a known antibody but i have to grab a unit out of the floor. yeah fortunately uh emergency release blood is uh fairly safe um and that's because most people uh, do not have uh, a red cell antibody. Uh, so if you take all comers, you're talking about uh, around 3% of people will have a positive antibody screen and have an antibody that we need to navigate around or give antigen negative uh, blood. Um, and so for that reason, uh, you know, in the emergency situation, um, I would rather take the risk of that's very low of giving somebody an intravascular hemolytic transfusion reaction, uh, you know, take that risk versus the known <laughs> quantity that they're going to exsanguinate. Yeah. Yes. So this, this kind of tenant of better red than dead uh, definitely should always, always remain uh, first and foremost in our mind. By that same notion, however, um, we also come across uh, maybe folks who are very used to, because very few people have red cell antibodies in general, people are used to when they call for emergency release blood or you know, they learn that they can activate a massive transfusion protocol and they will get blood quickly. Um, which, uh, as I'm talking to the emergency medicine group, I know uh, time is always right now. Of the essence. Right now, <laughs> yes, patience is not our specialty. And so, you know, there's a time and place for that. If the patient is uh, going to die in your clinical judgment, I say let's uh, let's take the small risk of uh, something happening to weigh mm -hmm. against that. But if somebody shows up and they're stable, we should uh, let that testing go um, 
to where we complete the testing and we can determine there's no clinically significant antibodies. Or if we find that there's antibodies, that's when the blood bank then goes and finds units that are negative for that. But this uh, takes time, right? Which the patient might not uh, be able to tolerate. And that's why we have, that's what's really neat about transfusion medicine services. We have a lot of processes that take time so that we can find these antibodies, find compatible units, but we always have pathways to meet the clinical need. And that's why maybe a take home for the listeners is really, um, you know, if you're ever in doubt, uh, I think just call your blood bank up and just have that honest conversation of, you know, uh, where you're at clinically, you know, you have this patient and you just need blood now, or is this, I have this patient, I don't feel really comfortable with them. I think I can wait an hour. Um, you know, just have that conversation mm -hmm. because that communication helps the blood bank know that if there's any sort of way we can do the process faster, but the testing takes time. Uh, we can go about working that as well as if you ever call back and say, <laughs> Situations change. I need blood now. Uh, we know and we have stuff that we can issue you right away. You mentioned the massive transfusion protocol, and I think that's a great example of how you're set up to meet the needs of the most dire situations. Talk to us about what that is here at Mayo Clinic, what it might look like in other shops, and how that differs between massive transfusion, say, in the literature versus at the bedside. So, uh, massive transfusion. Um, here at Mayo and in many places are probably going to be generally one protocol, kind of the, it's your one size fits all uh, baseball cap. Uh, and that's important, right? Because when somebody is bleeding, you want to have somebody who could be almost anybody on the team be able to call the blood bank and say, you know, we need blood now for this patient. This is where we are. Um, and not have the blood bank, you know, pull out the, uh, the menu and like, okay, let's see, like, is this the, uh, you know, GI bleed patient? Is this the trauma gunshot or is this the trauma non-penetrating? Is this, so, uh, it's just a, a one size fits all is what most hospitals will do because that just simplifies communication. And then for you all at the bedside, then uh, you know, you're going to have this push system delivering you blood products, and then you can decide what the patient needs. Um, I don't think there is any big secret to what the, is in the um, massive transfusion protocol. So, for example, a few years ago, uh, our massive transfusion protocol was uh, a cooler of six red blood cells, six units of plasma, and uh, one apheresis platelet draped over the top of that. Um, over time, we've kind of, by the amount that we get back and how much we use in our typical massive transfusion protocol, and um, we've basically crunched the numbers and figured out uh, there's less waste if we issue out in our coolers four units of red cells, four units of plasma, and one apheresis platelet. Uh, so, Kudos for us. You guys have an enriched platelet, platelet ratio uh, relative to that famous or infamous one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one, uh, ratio of, of blood product. Um, I don't think that's 
making a big difference on things. I think the most important thing to a massive transfusion protocol is that it's a, a push system designed to rapidly deliver uh, balanced transfusion options uh, for your patient. So I encourage uh, listeners to reach out to their blood bank and ask, uh, what, are, what would I get uh, in that situation? Um, and are there any uh, differences? Um, you know, like we actually will do a modified version of that if we have a mass casualty. So um, understanding your local practice and, and building that uh, bridge uh, with your local blood bank. I hope that's what this podcast is encouraging. Absolutely. For sure. And that's right in the, in the trauma bay we're getting that cooler. But there are systems in place when that system is activated that extend through the ICU and OR as well, right? You know, one of the big things that's important, um, and this is actually something that's come up for us recently, is an awareness of where to send these blood products, right? And so that's a, a key part of the conversation and the communication. Um, for us, uh, I think that's probably most critical when we initiate that we know where that is because of our process here is based primarily on a runner system. So once that initial contact is the runners bringing it to the bedside, they will know if somebody's imminently shifting, transitioning to the OR. Uh, but those transitions uh, can be tough. And so uh, making sure that, you know, how you're getting your blood, they're aware of shifts and where the patient's location is because we have situations where blood's delivered to the old place or it's delivered to the new place and the patient isn't there yet and they're waiting for that blood to do that that transfer. Um, another kind of caveat on that or version is um, uh, a lot of places will have their, uh, their like OB ORs in a different situation than maybe their a different location than their main ORs. And so uh, when peripartum hemorrhages happen, you know, do we know where to find each other? I don't have enough positive things to say about your team. I, I was uh, mentioning before this that I had to call just last night for massive transfusion and the expertise, uh, the clear training that you've, you've put forth for your team is incredible. Uh, it you know, is able to cognitively unload uh, the entire trauma and, and ED team so we can continue trying to focus on uh, other aspects of stabilization. And so we're just so lucky uh, to have your team working with us. Thank you. I heard you mention a couple of numbers, one to one to one. I wanted to hear more about what exactly that means and where do those numbers come from? So I, I think my biggest challenge that I want to emphasize up front for everybody is when we say one to one to one, people are usually thinking about one red cell, one plasma unit, and one platelet. And it is important to understand that that one platelet unit is a whole blood derived platelet unit. Uh, because this kind of came out of the military experience where they use whole blood derived platelets. But given that 80% of the U.S. uses apheresis platelets, and so for the listeners, this is probably a lot of new uh, language. So your platelets in the U.S. can come in two varieties. They can come as uh, whole blood derived platelets, and, some, and most times they get pooled into pools of four, five, or six. That's where you get that verbiage of a six-pack of platelets. Always wondered what that meant. Or what we, uh, again, 80% of the platelets in the U.S., 100% of the platelets here at Mayo Rochester are 
uh, apheresis platelets, which means that we have the equivalent of six whole blood platelets in one bag that comes from one donor. And so if you're to say, what is the one to one to one ratio look like at a place that's like 80% of the U.S. and using an apheresis platelet, that would be six red cells, six plasma units, and one apheresis platelet. Um, sometimes you can see uh, colleagues kind of talking about, oh, I had this massive bleed and we got them stopped with four units of red cells, four units of apheresis platelets, and four units of plasma. And, and uh, for many hospitals, uh, four units of uh, apheresis platelets will be the inventory. I will admit I have made this mistake here at Mayo before. In talking with you over the years, it has opened my eyes to how I was doing that wrong or, or inefficiently. And what's challenging there, yeah, I think inefficiently is a good way to put it because if a blood bank gets uh, an order, somebody demanding like the entire inventory for one patient, uh, you know, obviously instead of things just flowing out the doors like that we typically want to do in somebody that's actively bleeding in our trauma bed, uh, you know, that could potentially get hung up, right? Because we don't want to let out our entire inventory and then not be able to support the rest of our hospital uh, for running a level one trauma center, other people in our community that may be uh, coming in. And so then your order uh, gets held up in this sort of review process. And then also if somebody's calling you and you're adamant <laughs> about this is what your patient needs, that's, that's a tough time for us to communicate in a healthy way <laughs> and really meet the best needs of the patient in front of us. If I can seek a pro tip here, one, uh, a couple of questions that, that I get asked and I, I want to know what the best practice is. What should be the first thing that goes into the patient from your point of view? Is it the, the unit of plasma, packed red blood cells, and a patient who uh, appears to be having uh, uh, a hemorrhage? And how do you typically order those? You know, I think that I think there are some in the community that would be, uh, you know, adamant about that first unit being a platelet unit or a plasma unit. I kind of have the mindset that if you're talking about a, you know, capital H hemorrhaging patient, I don't know if, you know, that sounds almost too fancy, <laughs> too fine of a, a, a detail. I, I think the, the bigger picture is uh, getting a balanced uh, transfusion uh, to that patient. And that balanced generally meaning, you know, that we're not putting in like uh, 10 red cells uh, first and then switching uh, to the yellow stuff. So I, I think that the people that have studied this the most would, would say, well, just, you know, alternate. If you're, if you're wanting to maintain this one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio, just alternate red and yellow uh, as you go. But like you say, some people would certainly say a platelet or a plasma unit first. I think you guys have probably 26 different things you're paying attention to in that moment. I, I think just the idea of, uh, you know, if you can pull off a type and screen, you can call uh, for blood products and have uh, people up there hanging products. And for the people hanging products, to make sure they're alternating and maintaining a balance, I think that is is winning the day uh, for patients. Uh, when you start start to talk about small H hemorrhage, 
uh, and we're doing more of a goal-directed therapy, I think then there's maybe more of a nuance of, uh, you know, ordering of, of product. But uh, in the trauma bay with capital H hemorrhage, you know, the, those are the major take-homes. Justin, so far we've talked about one-to-one-to-one or one packed red cell to one plasma to one platelet, but there are other ratios out there, right? Like two-to-one-to-one, two plaque red cells to one plasma to one platelets, and there may be others. Can you talk about some of the literature behind these ratios and where you stand on them? Well, first there was the PROMPT study that really, I think, changed how we do transfusion medicine uh, tremendously. Uh, that was really the study that highlighted the importance of early delivery of plasma and platelets to patients. Let's take a moment and go over the PROMPT study, which is P-R-O-M-T-T study. This stands for Prospective Observational Multicenter Major Trauma Transfusion Study, comparing the effectiveness of a time-varying treatment with competing risks performed by Dr. John B. Holcomb and a large co-author group. This study was published in JAMA Surgery 2013, and we will have a link to the study in the show notes. The study compiled prospective observational data from 10 level 1 trauma centers to describe when blood products were being infused and to assess associations between in-hospital mortality and timing and amount of blood products given. Their study hypothesis was that early transfusion of plasma and platelets in higher ratios would be associated with decreased in-hospital mortality in bleeding trauma patients. Although 1,245 patients met eligibility criteria to be observed, to be included in the actual analysis, they had to receive three or more units of blood products. Thus, their analysis cohort was 905 patients, whose median age was 37, 76% of them were male, and just about two-thirds had blunt injury mechanisms of trauma. The median systolic pressure was 102, with an interquartile range of 82 to 104. Median heart rate of 109, with an interquartile range of 88 to 128. And the median injury severity score was 26. In the group they analyzed, again 905 patients, 94% of deaths from hemorrhage happened within 24 hours, and most happened within the three hours of admission. The ratios of products given were quite variable, and 30 minutes after admission, two-thirds of patients had not received any plasma, and 99% had not received any platelets. At three hours post-admission, and this is when most hemorrhagic deaths occurred in their observational cohort, 90% of those who survived at three hours, had received some plasma, and nearly 75% of those who survived had received some quantity of platelets. The conclusion from their eventual full analysis was that there was a strong association between survival and higher ratios of blood products administered to bleeding trauma patients. Okay, let's continue back with Dr. Kreuter. As we started to navigate that and to be better about how are we going to do this logistically, Uh, Then they followed up, the authors of that study, uh, John Holcomb and team, did the proper study as they were looking to say, what is the right ratio? Is it full plasma? And that's where you have that one-to-one-to-one ratio. Or would it be a half plasma where you have two red cells, one plasma uh, to one platelet sort of ratio? 
As Dr. Kreuter mentions, Dr. Holcomb and a robust co-author group followed up the PROMPT study with what is known as the PROPER study. This is formally titled Transfusion of Plasma, Platelets, and Red Blood Cells in a 1 to 1 to 1 versus a 1 to 1 to 2 ratio and mortality in patients with severe trauma. The proper randomized clinical trial, which is published in JAMA 2015, again, we will include a link in the show notes. The acronym PROPPER is P-R-O-P-P-R, as they had previously published their planned study design with the title, The Pragmatic Randomized Optimal Platelet and Plasma Ratios Trial. Also, you'll notice that in their title, they are presenting the numbers of plasma to platelets to red blood cells. Again, that's plasma to platelets to red blood cells. So one side had double the red blood cells as the other. As the title suggests, the study aim was to compare the effectiveness of these two transfusion ratios in trauma patients predicted to receive a massive transfusion. This was again a multi-center prospective randomized controlled trial where randomization happened at each individual center at the blood bank and the blood bank delivered different sealed coolers of blood based on the randomization. In the one-to-one-to-one arm, I'm going to call that the equal parts arm, the blood bank delivered to the bedside coolers that contained six units of plasma, one apheresis unit of platelets, as we have just heard from Justin, this approximates six units of whole blood platelets, and then six units of packed red blood cells. So for each cooler, the one-to-one-to-one arm or equal parts arm was identical and so was the six plasma to one apheresis platelets to one six red cell ratio. In the comparison arm, the coolers were not identical, so stick with me on this. The one-to-one-to-two ratio was created by having the first cooler and every odd cooler thereafter containing three units of plasma and six units of packed red blood cells and no units of platelets. The second cooler and every even cooler afterwards contained three units of plasma, one units of apheresis platelets, and six units of red blood cells. This eventually creates a ratio after every two coolers of six units of plasma, one apheresis platelet, which again equals six whole blood platelets, and 12 units of packed red blood cells, thus creating the 1 to 1 to 2 overall ratio of whole whole blood products that was intended in the study design. 680 patients were randomized into 338 in the equal parts group and 342 in the double red cells group. Age was equivalent in both groups. There were slightly more males in the double red cells group, 83% versus 78%. The median heart rate and blood pressure were identical in the two arms, as was time to randomization and injury severity score. The mechanism of injury is roughly the same between the two arms, but there is a slight difference that may be of interest to you to go back into the paper to read. The equal parts group had a 13% 24-hour mortality compared with the 17% mortality in the double red cells group. This difference, though, was not statistically significant. The trend did continue at the 30-day mark, where mortality in the equal parts group was 22%, and mortality in the double red cells group was 26%, again, not achieving statistical significance. Okay, now that you've been properly schooled, we will join back up with the group.
But yeah, that's what that study was looking at is what's the proper ratio to do? What what does balanced mean? And keeping in mind that this is really in the trauma patient population, uh, Dr. Holcomb was proud to share that it's the fastest accruing study, I think, in history of studies. What they kind of found there uh, was with their primary outcomes, they didn't find a statistically significant difference between those two ratios. Hmm. In their secondary analysis, they do note that there was a a faster resolution of the hemorrhage with the one-to-one-to-one ratio group. And so I think the way they would summarize that study is to say that in the trauma bays is a challenging environment. And so shoot for one-to-one-to-one and we'll probably fall a little short of that ratio. I'm not very experienced in this literature, and, and I'm not sure I know enough to, to challenge it. Were there ever any criticisms of the proper trial, and how would the authors respond? So two challenges come up for this that are often highlighted. The first being that when they did their two groups, the group that got the half plasma didn't get platelets until the second cooler, versus the group that got one-to-one-to-one got platelets in the first delivery of product. There's some reasons why they may have done that. And like many things in life, it's complicated and there's a a bit of a trade-off. But that's one of the classic criticisms. The two of there were not exactly comparing the ratios. There was the ratios as well as later delivery of uh, platelets to patients. The other one, right, is that their uh, primary outcomes didn't show a difference. It was in their secondary analysis where they uh, pulled out the trend. And that secondary analysis trend was the suggestion that bleeding stopped earlier in the one-to-one-to-one group. Yeah. So overall, you mentioned earlier the concept of finding truth in areas of uncertainty, and I think that's an incredible concept. When we look at the proper trial, what's the truth you've found? What's the ratio you've settled on? I like the idea of shooting for this one-to-one-to-one ratio, and then I think the study just gives us a little grace to if we actually don't meet that in in the patient to know that we still are doing well for the patient. So our young gentleman is getting worse and I've called for massive transfusion. In some ways, I feel like it's the office, that scene with Michael Scott, I declare bankruptcy. Usually it's me (laughs) saying, I want massive transfusion. And I just (laughs) announce it to the room and that's not the systems-based way to make it happen. But we're starting to push products. Is there anything else I need to be thinking about or how can I most effectively make sure that this transfusion is helping my patient? I think that at first, when we start, it's very focused on maintaining this balance, maintaining blood volume. But I think that it's important that we start obtaining labs for later when we start to achieve some control over the hemorrhage and can start to change from a, you know, almost a blindfolded approach to the patient in front of us, just ratio-based blood transfusion to more of a goal-directed therapy. What I uh, like to teach my residents is to slap themselves in the face. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) So for us who may not be uh, at the bedside immediately, we might get the call and we might be asleep. And so it, it One, it's a pretty effective way to wake up. (laughs) I love it. But two, it it reminds them to kind of look at their hand. And I I started this because I had a situation when I was in training where there was a patient that had hemorrhage, hemorrhaging out, and was going to go to the OR. And basically, the only thing we were tracking on the patient was the INR. And so my kind of slap yourself in the face method is to then look at the hand that you slapped yourself with and sort of tack off on your fingers and say, okay, 
I want to know and track, you know, either the hemoglobin or hematocrit. Key part there is to make sure you keep track of the red stuff because I've got a horrible story back in my closets where, you know, these coagulopathic bleeding patients, everybody gets fixated on yellow stuff. We forget about the red stuff, which that's what's going to kill the patient in the moment, right? If they don't have oxygen carrying capacity to their brain, their heart. So track and trend what their red cells are looking like. So either hemoglobin or hematocrit. Two is to look at and trend their PTINR. I'm not looking to go for any certain goal necessarily. I sort of use that as my litmus test for am I being aggressive enough with my resuscitation? So in other words, if I'm resuscitating a patient, I don't want to see that, you know, PTINR just trend up as I'm going <laughs> along. That probably means I'm just getting further behind the eight ball. I think that we should get a PTT. Um, I don't think that we need to trend that necessarily, but I like looking at that at the beginning. And I'm looking at that in concert with what is that PT, INR, and does that make sense for the clinical situation? I, I use it basically to say, do I need to kind of wake my brain up a little bit more and start thinking about other things? For example, that rare zebra of uh, acquired hemophilia might show up uh, bleeding in our ED, right? And we need to recognize that. Okay, in full disclosure, whenever I've heard of checking PTT indiscriminately on patients who are not on heparin or other medications that would be known to affect it, I often had joked, do we really think they had a heparin secreting tumor? And I meant it sarcastically, but after Dr. Kreuter brought up acquired hemophilia, I thought it was important for us to take a moment to talk about acquired hemophilia because that's something I personally had not reviewed in a long time, if maybe ever. But when looking at acquired hemophilia, it's certainly very, very uncommon. But in certain situations, it's slightly more common, such as in the postpartum period or in patients who have severe rheumatic diseases uh, like rheumatoid arthritis or systemic lupus erythematosus. And there are, in fact, tumors that can create anti-factor 8 antibodies. Um, so essentially a heparin-secreting tumor, you might think of it that way. And there are other drugs that can induce the formation of autoantibodies against factor eight. Some of them are fairly common, like penicillin and others like sulfonamides, phenytoin, um, and a bunch of other medications are lesser known causes of this as well. But in any case, just to say acquired hemophilia is something we need to be at least aware exists. And although it's very uncommon, Dr. Kreuter brings up a good point that if we don't ever check we can have patients who are bleeding, potentially bleeding to death, and be missing a primary underlying cause. Uh, because if somebody's bleeding because they have acquired hemophilia, like all the standard blood products in the blood bank isn't going to stop that patient from bleeding. We either we need bypass therapy, either with Novo Seven, recombinant activated factor seven, or Fiba. This got deep real fast. <laughs> I I. <laughs> So what on the PTT would alert you that there's a problem? What kind of ranges? And can we, can we just very briefly go into a couple of those products? Because this is something that I would want to be able to address. I mean, it, it's not to shoot off alarm bells here because there's a lot of like benign things that can elevate the PTT, right? So 
if the PTT is, uh, I guess most commonly, uh, the PT and PTT will be similarly prolonged-ish uh, in your trauma patient, in okay. which case, keep on trucking. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> you're, you're doing well and fine. This is your garden variety. You can have uh, a situation like if somebody had a uh, factor 12 deficiency, which doesn't matter clinically at all, but that in that situation, your PTT is going to be off the charts uh, prolonged. In which case, you'll see that it might first make you wake up a little bit more and then you'll uh, dismiss it. <laughs> that significantly prolonged PTT with a normal PT, you know, very commonly, far more commonly than that uh, rare zebra of uh, acquired hemophilia that I mentioned, would be the patient had uh, antiphospholipid. As we know, that's not going to be causing somebody to bleed. That's generally a situation where somebody might have clotting. So that would cause me to go and look at the patient's skin, right? Or do they have diffuse bruising? And so I'm just trying to make a case that the PT can provide uh, some information, help us wake up and, and think a little bit more if it's looking different. I think that's when we can either call our pathology transfusion medicine colleagues or to call a hematologist and ask them for their thought. And like I say, probably 99 times out of 100, they're going to say, okay, this isn't something that we need to worry about. But, you know, there are some things where we probably direct you to use a different treatment. So, okay, what are we at? We're at red cells, we're at PTINR, we're at PTT. Yep. Now, the one that nobody's going to argue with, platelets. <laughs> is, okay is my ring finger I've got extended. And then the one that everybody kind of forgets, uh, which is the crucible that I think is so important, is fibrinogen, is the, the pinky finger. And why I say fibrinogen is, is so important is when you look at a clot, a thrombus, what is it at the end of the day is that is a combination of platelets and fibrin. Contrary to how we're taught, you actually cannot have a platelet plug without fibrin. Sometimes some people might challenge me about, you know, okay, when do I really need to order a fibrinogen? I guess I would answer and say, if you care what the platelet count is, I would say you should care what the fibrinogen count is. In that case where I had, I started this off with that was going to the OR that was bleeding, uh, where we were just turning INRs, I actually did the slap in the face and I got a fibrinogen level and it was undetectable. And I mean, an undetectable fibrinogen, there is no cement to make a clot. That, that would have been just a horrific OR. Yeah. And we have specific blood products that we can give our factor concentrates to address that kind of a deficiency in fibrinogen. What are those? So we have fibrinogen concentrates or we have cryoprecipitate are the two things in the U.S. that we can uh, go to. Let me finish off the slap in the face and just say that uh, the palm of the hand is the clinical history because uh, talking about coagulopathy, <laughs> history matters tremendously. Why did I tell everybody to slap themselves in the face? Hopefully they did it hard enough that they get a little bit of numbness and tingling along their facial nerve there. They can think about hypocalcemia because mm. as we're rapidly transfusing patients, all of our blood products stay liquid inside the bag because they have citrate, which doesn't matter for the you know 
single unit transfusions, but if you're rapidly transfusing a patient, that can very quickly overwhelm their liver's ability to cha uh, transform that citrate into bicarb and, and have the patient breathe it off. And as listeners can be reminded of is if you don't have uh, calcium, not only is that not good for your heart, but your coagulation factors actually cannot form on those phospholipid surfaces. So these complexes, uh, that the way we make a clot, they can't form on these surfaces. It's basically the same sort of coagulopathy as somebody who is massively toxic on Coumadin, hmm. right? Because we interfere with the ability of those factors through vitamin K to bind on to uh, phospholipid surfaces. So to repeat it back, I have checking my H&H, &H, PTINR, PTT, platelets. Don't forget my platelets. Fibrinogen. I, I forgot the fibrinogen. I'll, I'll admit, I cheated. I looked at Vank. My clinical history is the palm. And then I slapped myself hard enough that felt some paresthesias and hit my teeth, which were full of cal calcium. Is that right? <laughs> it's exactly right. Okay. And for those listeners that like the Hemingway uh, six-toed cat, that's where you might then talk about TAG. And so the bumper sticker I'm going to get printed up someday is TAG Rotem. Uh, it's a, a dirty test for a dirty time. So <laughs> if I've got blood on my shoes, it's a great time for TAG. I'm going to jump in just to clarify. TAG is thromboelastography and Rotem is rotational thromboelastometry. I hope that really helps to clarify. And both tests are used very similarly in clinical practice, but they have slightly different outputs in terms of what they give you when you run them. So find out what you have in your institution or in your area and learn that one, of course. Let's jump back into it as we take a deeper dive into these tests. I love the concept of TEG, a dirty test for a dirty time. There are a lot of variables when I get that test result back and uh, I want to better understand them. What kind of information am I getting when I order a tag? You are getting a view of whole blood in a cup and measuring the clot mass that comes in this static cup that is gently rocking back and forth a little bit. That seems like a very relaxing <laughs> picture. Normally when I'm getting it, I, I don't feel like the, the blood is gently rocking somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I say that with intention, right? Just to appreciate <laughs> that, that I think a lot of people think about, and I understand that coagulation is really challenging. And uh, if there is a way that makes it more understandable, like let's do that, right? So I think the old school version of that was, was INR is going to be our way that we look at <laughs> what coagulation is. And then we've come to understand that basically INR is like the starter motor in your car. <laughs> so maybe that's not the that's best. Where I'm at. I was, just gonna, I was thinking the exact same thing, Alex. That's what I'm working at right now. So, you know, the next thing is I, I think TEG. And that's why, you know, I think it's important to understand that TEG was birthed out of this world of liver transplant when we would routinely transfuse like 200, 300 red cell units plus plasma and, and platelets to these liver transplants. And people were just trying to figure out, geez, is there, is there a, a smarter way <laughs> that we can do this, right? That was the world that gave us tech. So people have taken a look at this and, and used it in that world. And I will agree, in that kind of world, it has really helped. Uh, we see a lot of 
tag uh, used not only in liver failure patients, but we can see that used in our cardiothoracic uh, practice. You know, places where you might have major hemorrhage, you might have blood on your shoes. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> I think those are situations where there has been uh, an appreciation for it helping to guide the transfusion practice. Which is why I think that, you know, when people are trying to look at this now, some people will try to say, well, that this is like the full physical exam of the coagulation cascade. And they will point to it and they'll be like, look, it's got, you know, got the clotting factors, it's got the platelet stuff, and it's got that fibrinolysis stuff on the end. Like, <laughs> and it just looks like it's, it's the total package, right? Um, but there's limitations to it, right? Limitations being that it is a whole blood assay. That's why I call it a, a dirty test because all of the components of the blood are in there. There's a lot of, to use your words, variables in, in the mix, which can you know result in results that are not informative for the patient, right? So in other words, you know, I will submit to you that there can be that patient that is getting a tag, maybe outpatient to be optimized for their surgery in two days. And that tag result might show some very gross abnormality. But, you know, that patient has is walked out and they're, they're out eating lunch somewhere right now, right? I mean, they're obviously in, in hemostatic balance. For us, that's the <laughs> test that re results after they've left the ED and, uh, and suddenly... <laughs> Suddenly, they're either doing fine or they're not. We got to figure it out fast. <laughs> yeah, and so there can be an abnormality, but clinically, if there's not an abnormality, what does that mean? And I think that's where we help ourselves by just doing that test when you have blood on your shoes, because then an abnormality kind of means something. Likewise, you could have a patient that has some sort of coagulopathy that may not show in a tag. And I guess a classic example I use when I teach is to say, you know, what do you think a tag would look like in a patient that was on dual antiplatelet therapy? So they're on Plavix and aspirin. You know, what is that going to look like? And most people will answer and say that that maximal amplitude is going to be decreased. That's what I was going to say, Vank. Is that what you were going to say? I was already there. <laughs> but because, uh, remember, this this whole blood is, is sitting here being rocked back and forth. Uh, we started off this uh, cascade with a little bit of kaolin, uh, fancy dirt in there to get the coagulation cascade going. Those platelets are basically sitting because the coagulation cascade ends with thrombin, which we often are thinking about as cleaving fibrinogen to fibrin. But thrombin is also a very potent activator of platelets. So it's kind of like mother nature's redundancy, right? We can activate platelets through the cyclooxygenase pathway. We block that with aspirin. Uh, we can activate it with ADP. We block that with Plavix. But, you know, if you have it in essentially a, a cup of thrombin... <laughs> that platelet can activate. I talk about this like, you know, it's like going out clubbing uh, with your friends and, you know, you can put a blindfold on your friend's eyes so they can't see the the glow sticks. You can plug their ears so they can't hear the the techno music going, but, you know, they can still smell the, the cheap cologne. <laughs> <laughs> so that redundancy, so that platelet is going to hit the signal to activate. And that's why you're going to have a normal maximal mm -hmm. amplitude in that situation. So that's just one situation that shows that these tests have a lot of power to them, but also as physicians, it's important that we understand 
what their limitations are and to not consider it the end all uh, be all. Because at the end of the day, right, this this test, like you say, is is rocking very gently in this cup. Uh, this is not, you know, arterial blood squirting out of an orifice. Folks, this is Venk here. Sorry to interrupt. I'm going to give you a snippet of additional tag information that came out after our formal interview with Dr. Kreuter. And I'm going to put it in here because I think it's pretty cool stuff that uh, Alex and I didn't know. When somebody orders uh, here, uh, we have tag. And if somebody orders tag, right, you're obviously ordering it uh, when you've got blood on your shoes. And so uh, it's really important for that to be timely. Uh and so I think it's really important that we're visualizing these results while they are um, being worked on in the instrument. So that's what we are uh, doing, uh, you know, for example, in the ORs and the ICU is when we're running a TEG, uh, there's a screen up that shows that TEG curve as it's evolving. Hmm. Uh, now, that's a snapshot in time, <laughs> but we see that snapshot in time of when we took that sample for the patient, what this looks like as it goes, because we will get that R time, that alpha angle, that maximal amplitude, we'll get that in about the first 20 minutes uh, with our classic tag that we're running. Uh, as opposed to if you order a tag and you wait for it to get resulted in, in Epic, right? We have to wait for the whole tag to go. That means you're also waiting for that lysis 30 time, which is by definition 30 minutes after your maximal amplitude. So you, your results are getting delayed significantly if you're waiting for it to be resulted in the computer versus visualizing it uh, you know, as it's occurring in the trauma bay. So it sounds like we need a screen that is showing what they're seeing in the lab that broadcasts in our recess rooms. It's right on now. the Mayo Doc. Is it? Yeah. Just got to request uh, access, I believe, and then you can uh, bring it up. It's tied to individuals. So whoever is logged in on the computer, if they have uh, Teg Viewer access, they can pull that up. I want to be transparent about my limitations of knowledge on this test and just say I frequently have blood on my shoes, but it isn't common enough that I'm using this test. If you wanted to recommend for our listeners a resource, a basic resource that they could use to better interpret this test or as a primer, what would you say? I'll send you guys, you can put it in the show notes. Uh, there was an article that was written that actually is called, I believe it's a surgeon's primer uh, for thromboelastography. And I think that's a, a great kind of intro to it. Awesome. Justin, earlier when you were going through your slap cheeks model for evaluating bleeding patients, you mentioned fibrinogen. And that stuck with me because I'd been reading recently about how some folks believe that fibrinogen can predict the need for massive transfusion. Can you help me understand how you think we should be using fibrinogen in terms of when we should start replacing fibrinogen and what targets we should be shooting for? Normally, I think people usually have between 150 and you know, 400 to 450 milligrams per deciliter of fibrinogen. I like to think of uh, we want to just walking around stable patient, want to have uh, our fibrinogen always in the triple digits. 
when we start to go into double digits, that's when I uh, start to get nervous about more bleeding risk. Uh, when you look at recommendations in the U.S., a lot of, or I think the older recommendation is 150 milligrams per deciliter. But when you look at some of our European colleagues, and hat tip to uh, Dr. Ian Wellsby, I saw him give a great presentation. He's a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist, I believe, at Duke. And he did a presentation looking at, on the y-axis, what's your fibrinogen recommendation? And the x-axis was the year that it was made. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just an upslope. And and that's where my heart is. I think most people will say 150 milligrams is what we're replacing to per deciliter. In a lot of European countries, you'll do at least 150 to 200 uh, micrograms per deciliter in the capital H hemorrhaging patient, I tend to be aggressive with my fibrinogen replacement. That kind of caveats on a kind of core tenet of transfusion medicine, which is that there doesn't appear to be the value that we once thought was present for, I'm using finger quotes now for the listeners of, optimizing the patient. So prophylactic transfusions, by and large, uh, you know, have not come out with positive outcomes in the literature. And it's really the therapeutic transfusions. So there was a study uh, a while ago that looked at women. We know that peripartum hemorrhage can be very hyperfibrinolytic type of bleed. So fibrinogen is very important to be aggressive with. And so people started to look at, well, if we have a patient come in who has a percreta and we know that she is at a high risk for a major hemorrhage, maybe we can really address that uh, ahead of time and optimize that patient for that hemostatic challenge. And that didn't uh, pan out as uh, Mm -hmm. decreasing the amount of hemorrhage that occurred. And that's been time and time again seen for things like pre-op plasma, pre-op platelets. It's sort of a, a marker that patients have risk factors. If their INR is high, if their platelet count is low, unfortunately, it doesn't seem that doing that transfusion ahead of time decreases that, that risk. Thank you so much. That was so helpful. I'd like to, us to transition to a different clinical scenario. Up till now, we've been talking about the bleeding trauma patient. Another clinical scenario that we face all the time that can be very challenging from a hemorrhage perspective is gastrointestinal bleeding. I would love any recommendations you have on this, in particular, if you would treat these patients similarly to the trauma patient or different in some way. I think that's a phenomenal question because I don't think that that really has been answered. Because that one-to-one-to-one ratio that we've talked about so far, that's, that's been in the trauma group, basically, that has shown that. There has been some uh, work looking at some of the other types of bleeds that are out there, lower GI hemorrhage. I think that there are a variety of different ratios that people are using in non-trauma hemorrhage. And I think that is probably reflecting the diversity of the patients themselves uh, rather than the, the categories. A lot of the people that, that are looking at these ratios, I, I think, still will advocate for starting with and thinking about one-to-one-to-one in these patients, but also understanding that that is kind of a one-size-fits-all approach looking at the patient, and that, that patient with that lower GI hemorrhage 
there's probably a lot of diversity in the patient in front of you as far as, uh, I don't know, <laughs> how capitalized is that H? You know, how are they for volume? It might kind of impact how do I think about how aggressive to be about plasma. Okay. What I'm hearing is the trauma patient had an external factor that caused their bleeding, whereas patients with gastrointestinal bleeding might have unique personal factors that may have precipitated their bleeding, such as cirrhosis, I imagine. And so that creates more variability. Plus, there's less research in this area to date. And so there's a lot more customization of the transfusion ratios in these patients. In general, you're recommending that we start with one to one to one for those who have capital H hemorrhage, but be open to adjusting those ratios based on the way the patient is going and their particular unique factors of clinical care. Is that about right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think to appreciate that there's not, when you're outside of the trauma patient, I think you're in the, the land of uh, expert opinion okay. more. And just to appreciate that, so your clinical judgment rely on more. Justin, that's super helpful. The other area with gastrointestinal bleeding and other bleeding patients that I struggle with is when to pull the trigger to give blood. Can you speak somewhat to that? Mm, that's, that's a good question. Um, in general, we should remain focused on symptoms um, for our patients. I think that when you know we have hemorrhage, uh, then it's very clear where we're not exactly paying attention to lab values because they're not timely enough. Um, I think that similarly, we can use lab tests to help us, uh, when should we think more or less about a transfusion, but I think also appreciate that those transfusion triggers and targets that are talked about, um, those are also kind of population level uh, data and that we need to really individualize that to our patient. And that's where a lot of us have probably heard this the terminology of patient blood management, of really thinking about, is this patient going to benefit from this uh, transfusion? And so as the patient tends to then, uh, from a physiologic standpoint, start to declare uh, that they are, uh, you know, uh, their blood pressure is getting softer. Their, you know, their their heart rate is uh, picking up. Is starting to declare that their bodies are not able to meet their oxygen demands, right? And so they're starting to compensate. I think those are the things to really uh, pay attention to, in addition to what those lab tests are telling us. Um, I think beyond the emergency medicine. Uh, uh, environment itself, because I know you might have some people that are in other fellowships as well or other areas of, of practice, uh, just to use the example of a lot of times for our stable uh, patient, we talk about a hemoglobin of seven as a transfusion trigger. And I just want to introduce the perspective that, um, you know, if I show up and, you know, I guess maybe if I'm in a car accident, I'll be acutely down that low and I might be <laughs> symptomatic, but, you know, maybe I've got something to where I've uh, drifted down and I've uh, compensated. I mean, if I'm not symptomatic and I have a hemoglobin of six, seven, um, 
you know, uh, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> when you talk to most transfusion experts and really push them for when would you take a transfusion, uh, most of them would say, you know, if I was clinically symptomatic uh, or it was going to save my life. Cool. So, again, using our clinical judgment, clinical picture, more than the numeric values is probably the best way to go. Exactly. And that also works on the higher end. So, um, you know, you might have a situation where somebody uh, has a hemoglobin of, uh, let's say, like 8.5. And you might say that, well, uh, you know, that's higher than, you know, that's not down there in that seven range. And it's certainly above the eight range where somebody might have if they have a cardiac history. But if they're... um, you know, uh, disoriented or showing you that they're not uh, meeting the oxygen demands of of their body, that might also be a trigger uh, for you to transfuse the patient. It just is that most patients, um, you know, don't need a transfusion until we're down in that kind of seven grams uh, per deciliter sort of uh, range. Um, And generally, we don't think about patients needing a transfusion uh, unless they're in a cardiac syndrome or something like that, uh, if they're above eight. But, you know, that's that's uh, population level uh, data. We need to individualize it to the patient. So we need to pay attention to what are the clinical signs and symptoms that, are, that our patients are showing us. So just to reiterate what I heard is that if the patient's not very symptomatic from an oxygen delivery perspective, then maybe they don't need a transfusion, even if their hemoglobin is 6.5. On the flip side, if they are symptomatic, and we think it has to do with a lack of oxygen carrying capacity, we should feel empowered to give them blood and not necessarily shoot for a particular number, uh, but rather managing the symptoms that we're seeing and trying to address that. And the groups that commonly come out in our clinical day-to-day life are those with known coronary artery disease or who might be having a non-ST elevation MI as a result of GI bleeding or something. Traditionally, we think of that number eight, but you're saying that maybe this patient will be stabilized at seven and a half, or maybe they need nine, uh, and we should be open to that adjustment. Mm -hmm. Justin, one other thing. In general, I tend to think that we replenish other other tests to the mid-range of normal, um, like overshoot the minimum. Why are we shooting for such a minimal use strategy when it comes to blood transfusion? Why not get them to 12 and just know they're good? When I think about the oxygen delivery equation, it would make sense, right? Uh, if I increase my hemoglobin a lot, it would, it would really get my oxygen delivery up. Oh, I could go down a, a fun <laughs> A rabbit hole with you guys. Uh, Because there's also data about uh, higher hemoglobin helping uh, coagulation. But I think that the the reason why we try to take a more minimal approach is that it is a trade-off ultimately. So every transfusion is going to come with a risk uh, for the patient. That might be uh, a transfusion reaction. Uh, That might be alloimmunization that might complicate transplantation later. That might, um, you know, come from uh, maybe the blood donor 
who donated that product and tested negative for all the infectious diseases, maybe their next time they donate, uh, they uh, turn out to actually have an infectious disease at that point. And then you're having to go back and wonder and retest this patient and notify them uh, to get tested so that we can determine about was this in the window period. So every transfusion can come with a risk, and that's why uh, there's that jingle I think our British colleagues kind of uh, promote of uh, why give two when one will do. So that's that evaluating the clinical symptomatology. Uh, if the patient is symptomatic, you give one red cell and then reassess. Are we uh, better? Uh, does the patient need uh, another transfusion? So that we're minimizing the risks that they're getting while hopefully giving them sufficient benefit. But the idea of it's a trade-off at the end of the day. And I think there's a lot of outcome data to support this. Is that right? Do I understand that that mortality and and these significant transfusion complications can go up if we have a, a higher transfusion goal. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt. Along those lines, so I think I have an idea of how much I'm going to give and and what's going to guide me. That getting slapped in the face, but what exactly am I going to pay? There are leukoreduced products, irradiated, all these options when I I open my Epic tab. What are these different products, and when am I going to pick them? Yeah, so nowadays, uh, so we call those product modifications. And so um, the leukocyte reduced, uh, that's the, what we do to uh, reduce the white blood cells in our blood products. And that's, that's quite important for uh, taking down that risk of alloimmunization uh, for our patients. So that was particularly important for patients who might be uh, pending a transplant of some kind in the future. Um, but it also decreases the risk of one of our common transfusion reactions, a febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction. And so uh, that actually now is, is relatively standard practice in the U.S. You actually have to work really hard to get a non-leukocyte-reduced uh, uh, blood product. I'm sure I could do it by accident in the middle of the night somehow. <laughs> I guess the one exception uh, here at Mayo, the only product, uh, I guess two products that we have that's not leukocyte-reduced is uh, we currently don't leukocyte-reduce our whole blood products. Uh, because when we do so, we tend to uh, lose the platelet function in that whole blood mm. product. And then uh, a rare product that we transfuse that we don't standardly bank or carry, but uh, granulocyte uh, transfusion. Obviously, we want, want to take the white cells out of there because the whole purpose is to transfuse the white blood cells. So anyway, with uh, leukocyte reduced, that's something that is done to uh, reduce that uh, alloimmunization to HLA, which is what's important, human leukocyte antigen, the major histocompatibility product, um, major histocompatibility uh, complex. And uh, I like to think of that as nature's uh, master lock on what separates me from you. <laughs> uh, the other commons uh, product modifications that we do uh, would be washing uh, the blood product. And so that's something that um, actually probably very few places are able to do. Um, you know, I know when I was a, a resident, we didn't have a cell washer and it's not like our blood is 
dirty, using finger quotes here. This is this is the one that sounds a lot more to me like the blood's in a cup slowly rocking back and forth, <laughs> but that's okay. So the only reason to wash blood uh, is for patients that have a history of anaphylactic transfusion reactions. Uh, so that's due to uh, a, an allergen uh, in the plasma component, and that's why we can take a cellular blood product and wash it up. So we can wash up red cells, we can wash up platelets, but we can't do that for plasma or cryo, right? Because there's nothing to catch. We we just end up with a really expensive bag of saline <laughs> at the end of the day with those products. So washed products are only for um, uh, anaphylactic transfusion reaction. Irradiated products? Irradiated products, uh, that only needs to be done for our cellular blood products, so our red cells and for our platelets. And that's going to be also kind of a single indication, and that's to prevent transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease. Uh, I think of it kind of like the bone marrow transplant that I didn't intend to give. Uh, so in a non-irradiated blood product, and so I guess maybe if I get in a car accident on my way home tonight, and Alex, I don't know if you're working later, but... I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, you might transfuse me. I've got a competent uh, immune system. And so uh, those uh, few white cells, even though we've done leukocyte reduction, those few white cells that are in the product, um, they might come and uh, try to mount an attack on my body and, and proliferate. But of course, uh, I've got a normal immune system. My immune system can uh, flick those uh, few lymphocytes in the forehead and kill them off. <laughs> but for our patients that are uh, you know, severely immunosuppressed, like our bone marrow transplant uh, patients, uh, people that don't have a cellular immune system, uh, it's really important to do that. Uh, because if they do have transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease, that's almost 100% fatal. And so the way we treat it is really by preventing it. So anybody that is, uh, doesn't have a cellular immune system, uh, that's the patient that needs an irradiated blood product. Can you give me a couple of examples of those patients? Um, what, what types of things am I going to see uh, that I'm not going to make this terrible mistake? Yeah, yeah. So... I think uh, it's worth understanding that there's indications that everybody will do it for, uh, some indications that nobody will do it for, and then there's maybe some gray area in the middle. I think indications that everybody will do it for is a uh, bone marrow transplant uh, patient. Over what course of time are we talking about this? Is, is Did they, they had a bone marrow transplant a year ago? Are we still doing irradiate or, or kind of... Is it an acute phase? Yeah, it's a good question. It kind of gets into uh, what's local practice. So yeah. this might be another situation where uh, you know, I encourage listeners to call up their blood bank and ask them for their recommendations. So, for example, for us, uh, we're able to irradiate on site, on demand. And so for us, we just kind of do a blanket process. So any patient that's going to have a bone marrow transplant here we get that dropped in to their chart, and we're just going to give them irradiated uh, for every transfusion that they receive here at Mayo Clinic, regardless of who's ordering it uh, when. So from the time that they had the transplant on, this is what they 
And, and same thing for if somebody uh, gets um, uh, thymoglobulin, right, after a transplant uh, to prevent uh, the uh, rejection, cellular rejection. Uh, that's also going to put them at risk. And so we just put that in then as a requirement. Uh, once somebody's ordered it once as irradiated, we just keep that for uh, the patient's life. That's something that happens automatically. So if this patient comes in and I try, uh, I do my absolute best middle of the night uh, to order a non-leuco-reduced unit. Um, are there processes in place to to help me for a non-irradiated unit or if i if if i if i go down the process of just trying to order a standard unit uh is there is there any way i would be notified that that an irradiated unit might be advantageous so um if nobody has ordered an irradiated unit yet unfortunately we're not omniscient <laughs> yet in the blood bank <laughs> that is what i need i so, need your cell phone all the time every every patient <laughs> Waking you up in the middle of the night. We're on call 24 7, 365. <laughs> and I'll say for the listeners too, uh, you may be uh, not at an academic center, um, but you know, if you have a blood bank, there is going to be somebody who is the medical director of that. That person may not be, you know, subspecialty board certified like I am, but they buy their blood from somewhere. And that somewhere that they buy the blood from, they are going to have physicians on call 24-7, 365, who are subspecialty board certified. So I think it's important for all the listeners to appreciate that there is maybe a little bit of a telephone game, but there is uh, connections to help uh, with these questions uh, at any point. What I hear is the truth is out there. <laughs> X-Files, no? Love it. I love that show. But getting to your question about, uh, you know, if you forget to order radiate, as long as somebody has done it once before here in our practice, uh, that is in the chart as a requirement. And even if you forget to do it, we still do it. How long does the process take to irradiate a unit? So uh, it, it can just take a few minutes uh, to do if you're using a, a cesium irradiator. It depends a little bit on what type of uh, radiation uh, you use, um, but it, in the order of uh, minutes. Is there a reason not to do it for all cross-matched blood? So uh, when you irradiate, you actually uh, damage uh, the membrane a little bit. So that actually changes the outdate of the blood product. So instead of your standard issue blood product being good for 42 days, it changes the outdate to 28 days. And if you're caring for the uh, a pediatric or neonatal uh, patient, I guess I'll say neonatal population where you might be more concerned about the potassium that's in the blood product, when you irradiate, then there's a faster potassium leak out of uh, that red cell. And so that's uh, another uh, point of concern for folks. And that's why we wouldn't irradiate all of these non-time sensitive or immediate need blood products. Mm-hmm. Got it. So if I, we've talked about patients who've had a, a a bone marrow transplant, but we have a, a lot of patients with end organ dysfunction who may be transplant recipients coming up. I'm thinking about uh, heart transplant patients on LVADs, uh, or they will get a heart transplant with uh, bridge therapy. 
uh, renal patients, failure. renal failure, renal failure um, that that are transplant candidates. Do I have the potential to do these patients harm if I'm just transfusion transfusing to a goal of seven? I think the question is an interesting one because. Um, I think when you're asking that question, it puts a little bit more emphasis on the patient's signs and symptoms in the patient that's in front of you. And you're going to think a little harder on the transfusion. And why I find that interesting is I feel like that's what we should be doing for every patient. (laughs) (laughs) So what you're saying is just do what you're doing, but do it better all the time. Okay. <laughs> you know, does, does this patient really need it? Because, you know, a lot of these, you know, optimization or, you know, somebody wants to pump some number up higher, you know, this has not translated into differences for patients. And certainly there's a downside. And I think that the transplant patient population or those that are heading towards transplant, it highlights for us that downside, right? And so it's more apparent for us. And so maybe this is a bit of a a call to arms for everybody to reflect on why am I not as, I should be thoughtful to that degree for all of my patients because anytime I'm transfusing, I am running them these risks. Those risks come uh, equally with every transfusion. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I don't have uh, blood in my bank that's bad blood that I know is going to cause <laughs> uh, a reaction. Uh, so it's it's just an even downside that comes uh, with every transfusion. So what I hear you saying is Taylor Swift is a liar. That there is no bad blood. <laughs> but more than that, I, I I think this is a very provocative concept because I know I personally, if if my patient has a hemoglobin of 6.7. I'd be a little bit worried, you know, if I'm admitting the patient, it feels like the admitting doctor would think I made a mistake. I didn't identify the hemoglobin of 6.7. I didn't get it up to seven. Um, You know, my colleague taking over the patient would think, why didn't, why didn't Finch address this? Mm -hmm. Um, But this is, this is really a a, a patient centric thing. If, if there aren't signs of poor perfusion, that's not just best for our transplant patients, uh, or everyone is a future transplant patient. <laughs> everyone. everyone has the potential to be yeah. a future transplant yeah. yeah. And I would say that uh, what we need to think about is just um, to free ourselves and free uh, our colleagues from that, right? So if you start noticing that, being thoughtful in that way, maybe electing not to transfuse a, a patient for a particular reason, but you include that in your note. Right, uh, you know, hemoglobin of six point seven noted. Patient is asymptomatic at rest. Um, they are being admitted, so they will be monitored. Jerry yeah. Seinfeld, yada yada yada. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes that makes great sense. But uh, and also just to just so uh, we're clear, and I'm more clear. If I give a packed red blood cell transfusion, there is no bad blood, but there is unluckiness. And what, what, what could happen to a patient if, they, if things don't go well? So I think the, the biggest one that patients are worried about, I think, are uh, infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. So they're worried about um, getting HIV uh, from blood products. Uh, fortunately, that is down in the you know, one to 
one in two million uh, transfusions. Uh, not zero. <laughs> uh, no tests are perfect, and that's where we kind of uh, get to um, uh, challenging topics of who is eligible to donate blood. Um, but the most common risk they really buy into is going to be transfusion reactions. Uh, and I think, you know, the most common ones that come up are uh, allergic reactions. So fortunately, simple allergics, it's not comfortable for the patient, but where they'll have hives and itchiness. Um, and the other one that's uh, relatively common is going to be a febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction, which Unfortunately, the most common presenting sign of an acute intravascular hemolytic transfusion reaction is an isolated fever. Uh, so that's why we always have people stop transfusing when they recognize a one degree centigrade change and send the blood back to the blood bank and let us do an investigation. Uh, but uh, fortunately, most of those turn out to be a febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction, which also isn't generally too pleasant uh, for the patient as they typically will have uh, rigors and chills and the like, but uh, fortunately are not, um, uh, don't have uh, further uh, impact for the patient. How does time factor into that? I know the, the transfusion nurse usually says, uh, how fast would you like that to go in? And my response is always, how fast can we possibly do this? I, and uh, that is not the right answer. <laughs> well, it may be the right answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I think that's, uh, that's where I think uh, you guys and, and your colleagues have, have uh, grilled me uh, in our trauma review conferences as we you know, look at and talk about uh, how fast to transfuse. And it's a complicated topic that basically boils down to, again, a very patient-centric uh, perspective. So... If a patient is uh, exsanguinating out, you want to be transfusing ideally at the same rate that the person is bleeding out. Now, anytime we talk about transfusion rate, I think it's important to appreciate that the number one way that we kill patients with blood products in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, is uh, from transfusion-associated circulatory overload. And so, if Taco? Yep. Taco. <laughs> so uh, to appreciate the fact that if we're uh, transfusing somebody uh, too fast, uh, right, we can uh, get into complications there. And because that's the number one way we are killing people, that's why I think we need to just pull attention to this is why, you know, you are often asked, you know, what rate do you want to transfuse uh, this patient? And so by all means, if we're talking, uh, you know, about a young adult and we see obvious bleeding, I mean, we want to uh, be very rapid in that situation. Uh, we might come out with uh, maybe an older patient uh, that has a lower GI bleed where maybe it may not be as apparent just how fast this is, where we might want to uh, be a little bit more thoughtful and watchful and see as we're transfusing this patient, are, are we keeping up or does it look like their vitals are, are continuing to go the wrong way? For the slower transfusion, somebody whose hemoglobin is 6.7 and I've just decided I'm going to get to 7, is there a, a risk difference in giving it over in an hour or giving it over 15 minutes? 
I, so <laughs> I'll answer this in maybe an odd way. Um, so again, if I, if I show up, uh, and I am uh, bleeding out by all means uh, as fast as you can. Uh, but, you know, if uh, my daughter was getting, um, you know, let's say the uh, prophylactic transfusion or, you know, we're in a situation where it's not all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, wow, those platelets are really low. Let's let's get that up. Uh, I guess my uh, senses, uh, I'd, and I guess Physicians always make the worst uh, patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe physician parents <laughs> make things even more complicated. I would say, you know, I'd give uh, the product rate, all of our blood products we can give over four hours. That's the window that the FDA gives us to transfuse the bag or unit. And so um, I guess I would say uh, if there's not a rush, you know, why why give it any faster? Because we're going to be checking uh, on them, uh, and uh, if we they start to manifest a transfusion reaction, uh, we can stop the blood mm. product at that point. And we know, we know for these fatal transfusion reactions, acute uh, intravascular, trolley transfusion related acute lung injury, uh, taco septic transfusion, right? Your risk of dying is directly proportional to the amount of incompatible antibodies, bacterial contamination that you transfused. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would say is if there's not a reason um, to go fast, why? Makes sense. Justin, aside from the hemolytic reactions and infection risk, I feel like you were touching on another potential harm that we could cause to patients who might receive transplants in the future. Can you expand upon that? What is the danger that's unique to those patients who might go on to have a transplant in the future? So the challenge is that when we transfuse our patients, we do leukocyte reduce the blood. So it's trying to make that um, as little as, you know, lymphocytes being transfused as possible because the lymphocytes in blood products uh, have a lot of expression of HLA, human leukocyte antigen. And HLA uh, antibodies are the things that really are the main driver in uh, organ transplant rejection. And so if we're talking about a patient who is getting set up for a transplant, if they receive blood products and develop uh, HLA antibodies uh, and develop a a high amount of these HLA antibodies, uh, then uh, in one of the other hats I wear is I uh, do testing. And if I see these antibodies, then we have to tell uh, UNOS, the United um, National Organ Sharing Network, uh, that we will not accept offers from donors that have this HLA type because our patient has a high antibody load. And because we fear that if we took that organ and transplanted it and we would have pre-existing HLA antibodies, that we would have a hyperacute rejection and that's where, you know, in the, the history of uh, transplant, that's where we would see the heart or the kidney, uh, you know, turn black uh, and die within uh, minutes to hours. Um, and so uh, when we talk about what 
causes us to have to form these HLA antibodies. Uh, the main drivers are going to be pregnancy, transfusion, and transplant, right? So anytime that we're exposed to something that's not us, we're exposed to some other HLA, our immune system then sees that other HLA and can make an antibody against it. And so that's the main uh, risk is it really decreases the pool of donor offers that our patients can get. I would feel incredibly guilty if I transfuse somebody for a weak indication only to reduce their likelihood of getting an organ transplant down the road. Uh, that, thank you for explaining that. I'm glad that you kind of highlight that weak indication, right? Because the emphasis is on really being critical about our transfusion decisions and hopefully generalizing that practice out. Um, and you may cut this, <laughs> but I sometimes think about this uh, kind of like the way we talk about safe sex and that uh, if you don't want to get pregnant, then be abstinent. If you don't want to have HLA antibodies, we don't transfuse. But sometimes that's not the option, right? right? And so what's then the next best thing that we can do is to make sure that we are transfusing leukocyte-reduced blood products. Justin, switching gears a little bit, some patients that we care for don't want blood products for various reasons. Uh, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, that population comes top of mind to me. Do you have any advice for Alex and I and our listeners on how to manage hemorrhage or bleeding in this group of patients and how the blood bank, if at all, plays a role in that? Mm. It's a complicated question. Um, so when there is time, and I realize there might not be time uh, in your environments, uh, but when there is time, I think it's worth understanding that Jehovah's Witnesses um, are really uh, individuals within a group. And so what I mean by that is it's really important to sit down with the individual and understand uh, what their um, beliefs are, what they are willing to accept, and what they are not willing to accept. And so the way that you can probably do this in a as timely way as, as possible to have that conversation. Uh, we have a, uh, not just the blood consent form, but we have a blood refusal form. And if you pull that up, it has uh, all the different, um, you know, blood products and factor concentrates. And you could pull that up and use that as a tool to walk through and understand, will somebody accept X, Y, or, or Z? And by all means, you can reach out to uh, colleagues like myself or a hematologist to understand some of these different blood products because some of the coagulation factors that we may use, some of them will be recombinant factors, whereas other ones are pooled human uh, drive plasma uh, factors. What does recombinant mean exactly? And how is that different than pooled? So recombinant means that it's manufactured. Um, so they're going to use cell lines 
And then, uh, and then if you're really going down the, the rabbit hole, there's different generations of recombinants. And as you went through the different generations, you're getting less and less uh, human um, uh, components in the manufacturing uh, process. And so, um, you know, for example, uh, if we're talking about uh, antithrombin uh, concentrate, uh, we have a recombinant uh, antithrombin concentrate um, called atrin, and we have a uh, pool plasma antithrombin concentrate uh, called thrombate. And so, you know, there may be some Jehovah Witnesses out there that would take neither, uh, and there might be some that will say, I, I'm okay with the recombinant, but I don't want to take the pooled plasma version. So, what I'm getting to is it really each uh, individual uh, will have different um, products that they are willing to accept, and it's worth stepping through rather than to make the kind of global uh, assumption that they will accept nothing. That they may accept nothing, but uh, it's uh, worth uh, having that conversation to understand uh, for their beliefs uh, what, a, what is on the table, what's off the table. Along those lines, I think about TXA as a common therapy I do for anything from epistaxis to, to maybe even one of these more severe cases we were talking about. How would that factor in? Yeah, so uh, I, I said factor in here. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, another way that we are... Uh, this kind of pillar of patient blood management of reducing the amount of bleeding that somebody has uh, so that we're reducing their need for uh, transfusion. So absolutely, that's an adjunct uh, that we can be considered, right? It, because that is going to be a, a pharmaceutical, not a human-derived uh, plasma product, right? So uh, that's going to be uh, typically uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would accept uh, an antifibrinolytic. I want to take a moment to highlight the hospital liaison committees for Jehovah's Witnesses. This is a subset within jehovahswitnesses.org that is comprised of witnesses themselves as well as clinicians who have dedicated themselves to trying to improve the relationship of witnesses and clinicians to find the best match of treatments to the patient's desires. Um, there are local representatives as well as phone-based services that are available for free worldwide, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I'm not affiliated with the organization. I don't get paid or sponsored or anything by them. I just have had really positive interactions with them, and I, I want others to be able to have that resource if needed. We will put a link in the show notes. Um, along those lines, do either of you know of any other resources, even locally or nationally or internationally, that might help in some of these discussions? Here at the clinic now, we also have a, um, a bloodless uh, surgery medicine consult that can be ordered uh, that has, it operates out of a outpatient uh, clinic in the Gonda building. So that's another resource for if we have uh, patients uh, that are coming through, uh, not an inpatient consult team, but that's excellent. So that's to be aware of. So like somebody who's going to have a surgery and then can have this consult first to try and work through that. Is that? the patient population that would seek it, it's sort of like yeah. before I'm going to do something. 
Yeah, exactly. And then that that group can sit down and go through uh, full Monty uh, with these products and uh, explain each and every one to them, as well as uh, do we need to delay your procedure? Can we delay your procedure so then we can uh, you know, give you iron and optimize your red cell mass uh, going up into surgery? It's really incredible. When I was a medical student, I remember there was talk about purely synthetic red cell products or red cell lines. Do we have anything like that? Nothing to scale. So uh, people are certainly uh, working to manufacture uh, red cells, um, working on ways that we can uh, treat red cells to make them (laughs) become like O uh, units, uh, for example. And to date, we haven't really figured out a way uh, to do this well. Um, that said, I think that a lot of the interest and focus on mass casualty events have really kind of, uh, again, lit a fire under, uh, you know, can we figure out, um, you know, kind of a, a bridge uh, therapy that could be used um, that would be something like, a, you know, bovine hemoglobin that would be lyophilized that we could just kind of uh, mix up in the in the field and and give to our our patients. Um, But yeah, we still have not been able to uh, create in a lab um, any of our blood products. And so that's a nice kind of plug to all the listeners that, uh, you know, here in 2023, we are ultimately dependent on people coming in and rolling up their sleeve, uh, taking a needle in the arm uh, for a period of time to donate uh, blood products uh, for us. And just to appreciate that every time you transfuse a unit, you know, that probably represents uh, some donors spending an hour of their life uh, in a donor center. And every platelet you transfuse probably uh, represents about uh, two hours of somebody spending their life in a donor center. So the blood donors, the platelet donors, the plasma donors, um, they are the ones that are enabling uh, the care that uh, we're all providing our patients. Which I think also speaks to really considering, do we need to do this? Is this the right thing for the patient and for the uh, sacrifice that's been made for people to, to try and save lives. Let me take a moment to summarize the breadth of what we've talked about today. It feels like things come down to communication and thoughtfulness. When at the bedside of a person with capital H hemorrhage, especially in the trauma setting, there is some signal, even if not statistically significant, that one red cell to one plasma to one whole blood platelet is probably the best goal ratio that we have today. Keep in mind, Platelets are usually packaged as apheresis platelets, which means six whole blood platelets in one unit of apheresis platelets. So the practical ratio you might remember is six red cells to six plasma to one apheresis platelet. This is not validated in non-traumatic hemorrhage, however, but likely a good starting place even there too when you have life-threatening bleeding. Throughout, though, it's important to have good communication with the blood bank so that both groups, the, clinic, the bedside clinical group and the blood bank, can have a good understanding of the clinical situation and can be most ready to support the needs of the patient, both upcoming as well as down the road in the operating room or the ICU. 
Great communication with the patient, of course, is central to all of this, to understand their goals and for them to understand the risks of transfusion. In addition, Dr. Kreuter, you shared the very striking slap cheek model for evaluation of these patients, which included a test for each of the five fingers on the hand. First, hemoglobin or hematocrit. Second, PTINR. Third, PTT. Fourth, platelets. Fifth, fibrinogen. The numbness that comes on your face from slapping your cheek should remind you that calcium plays an integral role in transfusion and watch for hypocalcemia. And the palm itself that unifies the fingers is to remind us that all the tests are unified by patient history and patient situation context. And that gets us to communication again. We also talked about the emergence of TEG and ROTEM as tests that we should consider, especially when our shoes are bloody. In general, when communicating the risks, both to the patient and in your decision-making sections of the medical record, consider the risks of infection, transfusion-related reactions, and HLA alloimmunization, which could limit your patient's future matching candidacy with donor organs. To this end, it's important to be thoughtful about if a transfusion is even needed, especially in the non-capital H hemorrhage situations. If the patient is not showing signs or symptoms related to decreased oxygen carrying capacity, then it's very possible that transfusion could be best avoided, at least for the time being. There are no real hard transfusion triggers or thresholds. These are population-based assessments that are in the literature and not policies that you have to adhere to. In particular, it's best if you talk to the patients about what signs and symptoms they're experiencing and use that as a guide to when you decide to transfuse and how much you transfuse. Of course, there was so much more that we talked about in the past two hours. I couldn't tell you everything again in one summary. But one other key point that I heard Dr. Kreuter making that I want to stress to you, the audience, is that we need to be very thoughtful about the gift that people are giving. Even in 2023, Every unit of transfused product represents a gift from, an, from one person to another. Time from one person's life and liquid from somebody's body to sustain the life and body function of somebody else. We need to advocate for donation programs around the country, and we also need to be good stewards of that precious gift. How's that for a summary, Justin? That sounds phenomenal, Thank I think, you know, for our listeners, uh, probably some of those key points that you brought out about importance of uh, communication, being thoughtful about our practices, it really hits at home. Do you have any other things that you want to share that we didn't talk about for this audience of emergency practitioners worldwide? I think uh, in addition to this idea of uh, hopefully having communication, I think when we, th- when we think about these multidisciplinary teams that we bring up. You know, I think about, you know, in the trauma bay and I know everybody gets a, a sticker of what their their role is. Um, I think part of that education that I see there with the team is understanding, uh, you know, what does that person do and uh, how are they contributing to the team? Uh, there's no uh, blood banker uh, sticker uh, down in our in our trauma bay. We're kind of the behind the scenes uh, team partner, and uh, I think that's probably true in most places. Uh, yet we're still like you're seeing a, a key component of this team functioning, 
And uh, I'll also say that it's important uh, that if the current practice isn't working for your patients, you know, that we need this feedback to understand, um, you know, do we need to change? How do we need to change? Um, how are we going to go about uh, doing this? So I encourage people to um, ask to kind of do the, the dime tour of their blood bank and understand uh, what does the team uh, look like? Um, how are they working? Maybe what are the pain points that uh, come up for them uh, when we have to activate the uh, massive transfusion protocol? Um, I think that that's a great way to learn uh, about this interprofessional team we have. And uh, I, I see that making great strides because every person that works in the blood bank, uh, their heart uh, beats for patient care, I promise you. <laughs> Sometimes it may not seem that way because they may be navigating uh, regulations or under, maybe not uh, connecting what you need at that particular moment. But um, those are people that are choosing to work kind of on the front lines of laboratory medicine and uh, their hearts, uh, you know, rise and sink uh, with your hearts as the patients uh, do well or don't. Dr. Kreuter, you are so awesome to talk with and learn from. We're so glad that you are on our team in all respects. Our patients get top-class care from you and your whole team. We always feel that you all are our allies in the fight for our patients' health, and we thank you for that. To the listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us through this long but jam-packed episode. We hope that you really enjoyed it as much as we did and as much as we learned. We hope you learned as well. Please don't forget to like, comment, and follow the show on whatever platform you're using. That really helps us to get the message out more broadly. And then tell your friends, colleagues about the show. Please tweet about it, post on Instagram, any social media platform or media platform you have access to. We would really appreciate it if you share the messages that we're trying to, to disperse. Um, and we will continue to bring high-quality content and guests like Dr. Kreuter to you wherever you are. Thank you again. You've been listening to Always on EM, a podcast from Mayo Clinic's Emergency Medicine Department. We really appreciate you. Tune in next time. The Always on EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.